and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by the American actor, comedian and filmmaker Paul Feig. Paul has directed comedy films including Bridesmaids and the 2016 Ghostbusters remake, as well as episodes and shows including Parks and Recreation and Mad Men. A keen cocktail connoisseur, having released a book in 2020 called Cocktail Time, he also makes his own London dry gin. Paul, welcome to Table Talk. Thanks so much. It's uh, very fun to be here. I appreciate it. Paul, we're going to start where we always do at the beginning and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food is that I thought I didn't like it. I had a mother who, bless her, was not a great cook, and a grandmother who my father and my uncle always told me was the world's greatest cook, and her food was absolutely tasteless. It had zero taste whatsoever. She would boil chicken, everything she made, she wouldn't put any salt in or anything. And so I would taste that, and my father, this is the world's greatest chicken soup. And so I would have this chicken soup, and it just tasted like nothing. And then I grew up in Michigan in in the late 60s and early 70s. Restaurants were very bland, let's just say. Everything was fried. Every vegetable had been cooked, you know, the life cooked out of it. And so I really kind of thought I didn't like food because I was always hungry and I would very enthusiastically order some big entree. And then I kind of would get halfway through it and not be able to eat it because it didn't taste like anything, to which my father nicknamed me Big Eyes. Because he said, you have big eyes and you always order too much food and then you don't finish it. It's like, well, I I would if I liked it. (laughs) But I didn't know. I I honestly didn't know that food could taste like it. I thought this is just what food tastes like. But right around when I was about 14 years old, they opened a Mexican restaurant out in the parking lot of this mall by my house in Michigan. And my mom took me there. It was called Chi-Chi's. And I went in there and the first thing they did is they put out chips and salsa. And I remember just going like, what is this taste? And just this explosion of flavor in my mouth, this salsa, because it had never tasted anything with any spice at all. And then I ordered like chimichanga, it was called. It was like a glorified burrito with sauce and cheese all over it. And again, that just was this explosion. And I suddenly realized, oh, I've just been eating really terrible food. And then when I finally moved to Los Angeles to go to film school, that's when my palate really opened up because it was much more international cooking there and much better restaurants and I was taking great places. And so that that's my memory is this kind of sadness that I didn't like food. And now sometimes I wish I didn't like food as much as I do. <laughs> Paul, your father converted from Judaism to Christian science. Are there certain kind of forms of eating within Christian science that have a, an effect on, on the way your family ate? My grandmother was kind of a traditional, you know, Jewish cook. But again, I think because of fear of diabetes and whatever, there was just never any salt or anything. But we we, we used to go to a deli. My dad loved this deli in our hometown. And that's I would have corned beef and kind of go, oh, this is something. And like mustard was, you know, mustard was kind of the biggest spice I had ever had. So that was in there. But for Christian science, it didn't really affect the eating, but it was the drinking, you just didn't, it was forbidden to, to have alcohol. So my parents never drank alcohol, but I was kind of drawn to it when I was 15 because I had a, a drama teacher in high school who sadly was, was a alcoholic, but she also really taught me everything I knew about the arts and all. But she would take all of us from drama club back to her apartment and 
give us beer and, and booze. So we would be drinking, but then I'd had to hide it from my parents. Ironically, I kind of, I was just so enamored with the cocktail culture that I would see. Because when I was like five years old, my parents took me to Las Vegas because they went to see this Muhammad Ali fight. And they put me in the nursery, which was this glassed in room next to the casino. And I saw all the people in the casino wearing tuxedos and gowns and drinking martinis and, you know, <laughs> whiskey sodas and all that. And to me, that looked so glamorous. So I was like, I want to be an adult and, and have cocktails, but then it wasn't allowed. So I, I think it created this weird dichotomy for me of, of always seeking that out. And on the podcast, we often ask about school food, obviously, British school food is a very different experience to American school food. <laughs> were you taking your own lunches at school or, or were there canteens? What, what were you eating? Yeah, we had a cafeteria. I, I used to bring my lunch and then my mom got kind of <laughs> didn't really want to make it. I mean, I, like my mom got in big trouble once because I said I wanted there's a thing. I don't know if you have them here called Slim Jims in America, which are they're basically like a big, long, thin sausage that you chew on. And then we had these things called marathon bars, which were these long chocolate bars that kind of were like a lattice shape and it was just basically chocolate covered caramel so that they were two very long thin things and i remember saying to my mom once i want to have a slim jim and a marathon bar for my lunch so she being the, the terrible foodie that she was gave me that in a bag so i got to school and at lunchtime took out this slim jim and this candy bar and the teacher who was monitoring lunch was so horrified she called my mother and kind of checking to see if I was an abused child or something because I was got this completely non-nutritious school lunch so I, so I started not really bringing lunches I would just eat at the school but I mean school lunches were universally pretty terrible everything was out of a can especially back in the 70s when I was there we would always be excited about pizza day like once a week there would be pizza but that pizza was pretty terrible. It was basically like, a friend of mine used to say it was a cardboard with melted down model airplane parts on top. That's about the, about the extent of it. So again, it just, it continued my belief that I didn't like food or that most food other than Mexican food at the time was, was any good. You never looked forward to lunch and all you, all you saw was kids just throwing out tons of food too. I always felt kind of to this day, waste really upsets me because my father kind of upset him all the time. So that's ingrained in my head. So anybody throwing away food and just the amount of food that would get thrown out in the cafeteria was mind boggling. And after school, you moved to L.A. What what was food like then during, I guess, this is the early 80s that you were in L.A. first? Yeah, I got to L.A. in 81 to be a tour guide at Universal Studios. And I did that for a summer. And that's when I found out about USC Film School and I applied. And so I, I went back to Detroit for my, my sophomore year of college and then moved out for full time in 82. So, I mean, there still wasn't like a foods, foodie scene in L.A. that I was aware of. It was either really great Mexican restaurants or really high-end places like Spago. And there was a place called L'Orangerie that when I was doing an internship for this producer, they took me there for lunch once. And that was the first time in like a really fancy restaurant. And then sushi was a big thing. In Michigan, you just never had heard of sushi. You, you heard jokes about sushi occasionally, but to actually be exposed to a place where they have raw fish was very exotic. And I remember being taken by that same boss once for like an office lunch 
to sushi place. And weirdly, the very first piece of sushi I ever had was sea urchin, <laughs> which is a fairly challenging sushi, but I didn't know. So I was like, okay. And it's kind of like, uh, it was a little off-putting because even to this day, I, I like sea urchin, but it's like, okay, you got to prepare yourself to have it because like eating a cat's tongue or something. Not that I ever have. Uh, but now I, you know, I love sushi, but and you learn your way into these various things. It really, it took a while for the food scene to kind of take off in L.A., just as it did all over the U.S. It was really, I think, when the Food Network started up in the U.S. that people started getting more aware of food and caring about it more, which, thank goodness, they do. And do you cook at all at home, or do you eat out more? Well, I cook. It's funny, I go through periods of intense cooking, and then I completely stop. Everything in my life, for some reason, I go through these waves. I'll be in extrovert for a couple of years. Then I'll have a couple of years where I don't want to go out at all. And it, same thing with cooking. And I found when I was just coming up as a director, I was an actor for a long time. And then I kind of sort of transitioned more into directing. In the early days of directing, for some reason, I was cooking a lot. And we just happy. I loved having people over and cook. And I got, first I got really into French cooking because I, I used to build models when I was a kid. And so I really enjoyed following very distinct instructions. And so would get the court on blue books and get Julia Child and all those things and try to do these really complicated dishes. And it was fun. And, and they, they work because I'm pretty good at following directions, but they didn't have a lot of flair to them. And it was really when I was on a trip to London in the 90s, we were staying at the Charlotte Street Hotel. And that's when Gennaro Contaldo had Passione on Charlotte Street. And we went there for dinner and it was just this amazing Italian meal. And he had a cookbook, his cookbook. And so I bought that cookbook and reading that cookbook just changed my life because it was all about the ingredients. And as in French cooking, and I think the history of French cooking is they were trying to cover up terrible ingredients and all that. But this was just like getting the best ingredients and showing them off. And so I got home and started doing that. And I just became absolutely obsessed with Italian cooking, stopped doing French cooking. And to this day, I think I really still lean towards Italian cooking because it's just, it's a, it's a real crowd pleaser and it's fun to find the right ingredients and to really just make them sing. And, and it, I, I've yet to find somebody who doesn't like <laughs> a great Italian meal. And Paul, how, how important a role does food play in your actual films? Obviously in Bridesmaids, you have that very iconic scene, the food poisoning scene. Was, I mean, was that inspired by something? <laughs> yeah, well, it was kind of because I had never been to one of those sort of Fogo de Chao or whatever, you know, those Brazilian steakhouses before. It was right around when we were developing bridesmaids that I one opened by my house in Burbank, California. And so we went, we used to love it. We used to go all the time. And then when we were trying to devise that scene of like, what would be the funniest thing you have? Kristen Wiig's character has no money and she's trying to compete with Rose Byrne's character who has a ton of money. So she wants to take everybody out and impress them. So she takes them to kind of a crappy restaurant that she says is good. And I just thought, oh, what would be funnier than the place where they just keep bringing you endless amounts of meat because we knew we wanted them to get food poisoning from the place. So, yeah, so that that was kind of inspired by that. But I, 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 I tend to not have as much food in my movies as I do drinks. Because, again, I, I love the look of a bar. I love the look of bottles. I mean, most of my movies will have a scene in a bar, 
either a dive bar or a really fancy place, like in my movie Spy in the casino. And I'm always obsessed with uplighting bottles, putting lights either on the shelf or, be, or like a strip of lights behind so that these bottles glow in this almost kind of Stanley Kubrick sort of way. So I think I do more of that. One of the things why you, it's, it's hard to put food eating scenes in movies is because you have to do so many takes that actors, either they're, they're amateurs and like the first two takes, they're just like chowing down this food and you're like, slow down because we got to do a lot of takes of this. We got to do other angles and all that. So you see people slowly getting full and getting sick. But then the, the other thing is you'll have actors who are, who are very experienced with this when I did a show called Freaks and Geeks, Linda Cardellini, the star of that, she was really expert at like talking, putting food on her fork, and then kind of getting in an explanation with or a fight with her parents and then sort of like putting the food down and pushing it around the plate. So she never actually would eat the food <laughs> versus the, the John Francis Daly, who was the little kid on the show. He would just be chowing this food down. But fortunately, he was so young that he was able to uh, get through a lot of food. But uh, in general, it's always like, OK, let's. Start the scene before they order or after they finished. And what have your experiences of food on set been like, or behind the scenes rather than than on screen? Yeah, I mean, food on a set is very interesting because you have a thing called craft services, which is basically a table and there's somebody in charge of it and they stock it with, with snacks. But it's always been kind of a very contentious thing on set, especially as people have gotten more health conscious over the decades, because generally it was always just donuts and Pop-Tarts and junk, just chips and everything. So during the day, you just, if it's there, you'll start to eat it. So I would find myself eating stuff I would never eat in normal life, getting giant donuts with frosting on top. And you go, oh, I'm working, I kind of can treat myself. But over the years, the past you know decade, I would say, there's been a big movement to like make those tables healthier. But then you get the opposite thing where you have a completely healthy table and then there's some crew members that are really mad. They want the donuts. They want Pop-Tarts and chips and all that. So you can never quite find detente with everybody. But then there's an interesting thing when you're making movies or when you're shooting stuff that lunch is something people look forward to. But lunch as a director is like a nightmare because you get five, six hours you're working intensely, doing all this stuff. And then you take this lunch, which is a lunch hour, but it generally takes an hour and a half just to get people back. And then the energy level is just drops because everybody's sated from their lunch. And they usually, for some reason, always serve tons of carbs. It's always pasta and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. So everybody comes like weighed down, like ready for a nap. And you just have to dig out of this energy hole. So there's a thing you can do that, that you have over here in Europe called French Hours, that I've always tried to bring back to the States. And now my last five or six movies, that's what I do. And French hours is basically you work for 10 hours straight with no lunch break, but there's always food circulating on the set. And at the end of 10 hours, you just basically pull the plug. It gets abused a lot in America now because some people do it, but then they'll just still do a 15 hour day for overtime then nobody gets to eat. And so it's gotten a bad reputation, but I don't do that. I, I basically, you have to commit 10 hours and that's it or else it's torture for people. But I find that great. And then what happens is just, it depends on your caterer who brings around the food. If it's going to be healthy food, easy to eat, anything from sandwiches to some are very inventive with little cups of stuff. So you can just take a little cup of soup or ceviche or whatever it is or fruit and yogurt. And so 
it, it really just depends on who the caterer is and how they do it. There's always been a thing in showbiz where they said, like on a non-union set, the only non-union sets that unions have, haven't been able to come in and, and unionize have been the ones that have really good food. Like if there's bad food, people just rebel. If, if you're feeding everybody well, they tend to want to go along with it. So, so there you go. It's food is the key, the key to show this. <laughs> and Paul, you're clearly a big fan of cocktails, harking back to those early days in Las Vegas. What, what for you makes a good cocktail? I mean, do you, do you make your own cocktails? Do you like to go out for cocktails? What's, what's the secret? I like it all. I like to make cocktails. I make my superpowers. I make the world's best martini. I will say that is my, my, and everybody who has one will agree. <laughs> so I'm not just shooting my own horn. Uh, so I love doing that. I love inventing cocktails. During the, the lockdown, I had an Instagram show where I did every day for seven days a week at five o'clock in, in Los Angeles, a show where I'd come on and play a song and do a dumb dance <laughs> just to be an idiot, but then basically raise money for whatever COVID charity I picked for that day. And then I would, out of one of my cocktail books, I would find a new recipe I hadn't tried and I would make it on the show and then we would test it out. My wife would come in and she would test it and say if she liked it or not. And so that was really fun. So I actually, through the lockdown, became quite good at, at bartending and also at, at inventing drinks. So I love doing that, but I also love to go out for a great martini. I mean, my favorite place in the world to go is in London here is Duke's Bar at Duke's Hotel, where my, my good friend Alessandro Palazzi, he makes the world's greatest martini by him. They do table side. They roll this card, he rolls this card up and everything's frozen, the glass is frozen, the gin is frozen. He puts a little bit of vermouth in the, in the glass, swills it around and just throws it on the carpet so you just get it coated. And then he pours in this frozen gin and gets these big Amalfi lemons pulls a big twist, presses the oil over the top, and then drops it in. And it's spectacular. So I love that. But I love going out for, for to a nice cocktail bar. I think it's the, just the greatest thing ever. And where do you like to eat when you're in London? Oh, gosh. Uh, there's places I absolutely love. There's a place called Giovanni's of Covent Garden that is just, I think it's the best Italian food in, in, in London. There's also a place called Lucio's, which is over on Fulham Road in Chelsea. That's also spectacular, really great, run by this guy, Lucio, who's wonderful. I like Pula Pot in Pimlico. That's a, a really a fun evening out. And I'm also a member of like Mark's Club, so I really enjoy eating there. And Annabelle's has a lot of great, you know, they got a Mexican restaurant there now and they just opened a Japanese restaurant. So, but I really like eating in private clubs too. Harry's Bar, that, that's a great one too. But uh, I, I have a, a weird obsession with private clubs because in, in the States, I always wanted to have them, but they don't, we don't really have them. I mean, New York City has them, but they tend to be more based on if you went to college at Harvard or if you're a Republican or, if you, you know, or if you have a yacht or whatever. But here, I just love the, the private club culture of, of London because it's just, it's just a cool thing. I mean, you got anything from like blacks in, uh, in Soho, that's more like a little dining club, or then you've got all the other, you can go higher end all the way up the scale. But yeah, I love eating in, in London because the food is so good. It's funny because remember London, you know, at one time had a, not a great reputation for food, but they that got solved decades ago. But there's still people who don't travel in the U.S. will still go like, oh, yeah, the food in London's terrible. It's like you are living on such an old thing. Or they come here and they just go to McDonald's or they go to no, no slam against Aberdeen Steakhouse or, you know, those kind of places. But 
if you if you don't seek out great food, then sure you're going to be disappointed. And there's just the Indian food alone here. Uh, you can just have the greatest meal ever. Paul, you're clearly a, a big fan of British culture, and, and on, our notes here say that you're a fan of both Savile Row and Gogglebox. <laughs> yes. Does your work bring you over to the UK quite a lot? If you're watching <laughs> Gogglebox frequently. Yeah, exactly. Well, I kind of live here now, actually. I've done my last two movies here in the UK. I did a movie called Last Christmas that I shot here in 2018, I think it was. So I got to live here for, you know, a solid year, which my wife and I always wanted to do. My wife and I bonded over our love of London back when we first met in, in 1990. And she was actually working. She was representing clients here as a, as a talent manager. And so we would come several times a year. And because of that, we got a lot of friends here. But then over the years, we were just kind of, oh, we'd like to live there. When the when Emma Thompson sent me the script for Last Christmas, it was like, oh, this is our chance to actually live there. And so we came here and loved it so much that my wife basically declared, I'm not going back to the U.S. So so we kind of been living here. But then we went back to, to kind of gather our stuff. And I had some stuff I had to do right at the beginning of 2020. And that's when the lockdown happened. So we actually ended up spending the lockdown in Los Angeles, which was good because we have a nice house, we have a pool and all that. So it was actually quite comfortable way to do it. But then right after that, we moved here at the end of 2020. My new movie that comes out in September called The School for Good and Evil. We were going to shoot that here. We did all our prep here. And then we ended up having to shoot in Belfast, which was a wonderful experience, but there was just no stage space here. But then we came back and we've been uh, doing post-production here for the last year. We're basically living here now. I had a, I'm on that five-year talent visa I'm about halfway through that. And then we'll see. I mean, she's not going back. I have to go back and forth because my company's in L.A. and I have a place in New York. But but we have the dog is here now. So when, wherever the dog is, that's, you know, that's where. <laughs> and tell us, Paul, what's comfort food for you? Uh, comfort food is everything I shouldn't eat that will make me gain weight. <laughs> so it's the thing I have to avoid. But pizza and Mexican food and uh, Chinese food and uh, donuts, that kind of anything that's kind of either carby or just heavy in a great way. It's my favorite thing. I mean, when we go to Italy, we like to go to Italy and uh, we love to go to Capri or, um, or Venice. And it's always basically like, okay, we go to Italy, no rules. I'm just going to eat. But I always come back. Like, I swear I, I gain a lot of weight, but it's just, oh, it's just so good. Pizza, pizza is my downfall. I would dare say. And I was just actually in L.A. this past weekend, visited some friends up at Lake Arrowhead. And they were like, oh, let's just go grab a pizza at lunch. I was like, oh, let's not do it. But we did. And it was so good with this roasted peppers on it and all that. And I just, I, I, I have no control when I'm around a pizza. So I will just eat the entire pizza. And that, of course I did. And now I'm paying the price. And Paul, to finish on, we, no we normally ask our guests what their desert island meal would be. Although one guest just pointed out that Actually, what we're really asking is what what would your death row meal be? But it, we feel that's quite a morbid way of phrasing it. <laughs> but what would what would your final meal be? <laughs> I know. I was wanted to know is it an island where I don't gain weight, or is it? Or I guess it doesn't matter if I'm heading to the I'm heading <laughs> to the gallows. It doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I would actually say that it would be from Chalamet Louis in Paris, and it would start with those big slabs of foie with this bread that they kind of char in this this wood oven and then frog's legs and uh, snails <laughs> and then they do this amazing roast chicken that's probably the best roast chicken in the world and there's this giant bowl of duck fat fries shoestring potatoes 
and then a big leafy salad to somehow feel healthy in the middle of all this. That that would be if I if I had to pick one, I think I'd just drive right to Paris and pull up at the table before they take me off to my demise. And oh, and to drink alongside would be uh, a, a martini made with my own gin. I have my own gin called Artingstalls, named after my mother. <laughs> that was her mother, my mother's maiden name. And uh, Artingstalls, brilliant London dry gin, which is now, we're just coming into the UK with it now. So we'll, we'll be a lot of places. But yeah, I would make my martini, not in the Duke's way. I still do this thing that Alessandro does with very little uh, vermouth, but I still will stir it in a mixing glass in uh, over ice just to give it a little delusion, delusion just so it's not a, you know, because the ones at Duke's will just, you know, you're basically drinking undiluted gin and they will knock you on your, on your butt. So um, I will, I will do one of my martinis and maybe a nice wine to go with the, go with the, the meal. Amargo. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And if anyone would like to try Paul's gin, you can find it in Duke's, Carriages and on Amazon. Just ask for Arting Stills Gin. Paul, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. Thank you. It was really fun. I appreciate it. A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.